You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Two potential cyber attacks now look like glitches instead. Gray Energy and Zabrosi look as though they're close enough to be, if not the same threat actor, at least first cousins. The U.S. Army pushes significant cyber capability to a tactical level. Venezuela's crisis may provide the next occasion for Russian information operations. We'll look at how Bellingcat exposes info operations. Special Counsel Mueller secures the indictment and arrest of Roger Stone. Author P.W. Singer joins us to discuss his book, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. And leave the nest alone. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, January 25th, 2019. Two apparent or at least potential cyber attacks or government actions that surfaced this week now appear to be the result of technical glitches. In what's by far the larger of the two, Microsoft's Bing search engine was blocked in China yesterday, which prompted speculation in many quarters that this amounted to another brick in the Great Firewall, a riposte in a sharpening Sino-American trade war, and so on. But Bloomberg reports that service has been restored and that the outage was due to a technical mistake. Redmond itself has been quiet about the incident, saying only that service was back and that such things do happen. The second incident, a widespread outage of the criminal justice secure email, widely used by barristers in Wales and England, has now been determined by the Ministry of Justice to have been an accident, a glitch, and not the result of a cyber attack. The system went down a week ago, and a number of trials have been delayed. Full restoration is expected next week, but the system has of today partially recovered. Kaspersky reports that Russian threat actors Gray Energy and Zabrosi, one of the GRU group Fancy Bear's paws, share tools and techniques. Gray Energy is generally regarded as the successor to Black Energy, best known for its role in attacks that took down geographically confined but still significant sections of Ukraine's power grid. Zabrosi, seen as an avatar of sophocy, has mostly been active in government networks around Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Kaspersky has found that the groups used the same servers at the same times and serviced some of the same targets. The story is an interesting one in that it illustrates some of the difficulty in fixing the identity of threat actors, even after one has glimpsed them. It's not quite metaphysics, except insofar as org charts have a metaphysical tendency, but it does suggest again that attribution and tracking of threat actors is a complicated matter. Military cyber operational capabilities are fast developing into tactical realities. The U.S. Army is establishing two organizations built around the 17th and 41st Field Artillery Brigades to, 
As Breaking Defense puts it, hack, jam, sense, and shoot. Hacking and jamming increasingly go together as cyber operations and electronic warfare continue to converge. Sensing is a natural and necessary for both electronic and kinetic attack. The shooting would be done for the most part by rockets, specifically HIMARS high-mobility artillery rocket systems. The hacking and jamming would be the work of battalion-strength intelligence, information, cyber, electronic warfare, and space detachments, one per brigade, inevitably to be known by their acronym I2CEWS. The organizations are a serious sign that the U.S. at least is prepared to delegate significant cyber capability down to surprisingly low tactical levels. One of the new detachments is now operational with the 17th Field Artillery Brigade at Combined Base Lewis-McChord in Washington State. The other is destined for the 41st Field Artillery Brigade, formerly the Bobenhausen, but now re-established at Grafenwehr, Germany. These are by no means the national assets one usually thinks of when considering cyber capabilities. And when you get to Graf, cyber warriors, bring your galoshes. The mud there is famous. Since information campaigns can be expected to follow great power and regional tensions, watch Venezuela. Russia has warned the U.S. against military intervention in the failed Chavista state, NBC News reports. Venezuela is Russia's strategic partner, Deputy Foreign Minister Ryabkov said, and deposition of President Maduro, quote, would shake the foundations of the development model which we see in Latin America, end quote. The U.S., joined by the U.K. and others, has expressed strong support for opposition leader Juan Guaido's constitutional claim to enacting presidency. The U.S. has expressed its intention to put as much diplomatic and economic pressure as it can on President Maduro's regime, widely regarded as having retained power fraudulently. There's little evidence of interest in Washington's part on military intervention, but Moscow squints and says it can see it. It's striking that Russian statements find much to praise in Venezuela's development model. Bellingcat seems to have had success in countering Moscow's and others' information operations. Foreign Policy interviews the citizen journalists, who got their initial funding through a Kickstarter campaign, and discusses how they were able to geolocate ISIS demonstrators, expose the GRU agents behind the Novichok attacks in Salisbury, and point out that alleged gun camera footage showing U.S. atrocities in the Middle East was actually just screenshots from a first-person shooter game. Bellingcat has done some very nice work with open-source intelligence, and their founder, Elliot Higgins, points out the core challenge of anyone involved in such work. Higgins says, quote, Getting a balance between being obsessive enough and not also crazy is rather difficult. End quote. It can also be difficult to get open source intelligence, OSINT, taken seriously, since there's a perennial temptation among many, and intelligence professionals are no different, to confuse cost with value. And OSINT can be a bargain. Microsoft President Bradley Smith is again urging the U.S. to publicly adhere to the Paris call for norms with respect to conduct in cyberspace. If official statements from Paris and Lille over the last week and a half are any indication, the Paris call may be more operationally supple than the earnest executives from Redmond may wish. The FBI arrested Roger Stone, former advisor to U.S. President Trump in Florida early this morning, 
pursuant to an indictment obtained by Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Mr. Stone has been charged with seven process crimes, including obstruction of an official proceeding, witness tampering, and five counts of making false statements. The indictment doesn't allege that he conspired with WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, or others, as the president notes, but rather that he was not candid about his interest in learning about whatever dirt they may have had on the Clinton campaign. Finally, a person who goes by the nom de hack side FX, that's side effects, spelled S-Y-D-E-F-X, has been using credential stuffing attacks to take over Nest home security systems. He's asked his victims, or rather, as Mr. FX would put it, since he sees himself as a white hat, those he's helping to realize that their systems aren't so secure, to subscribe to, wait for it, PewDiePie on the YouTube. Again with the PewDiePie. Mr. FX told Motherboard... He's been doing this so he can land a job as an ethical hacker and presumably to provide a public benefit. Kids, look, if you want to be an ethical hacker, start with the ethical part. That little inner Jiminy Cricket will probably tell you, oh, not to force your way into uncooperating systems or to scare them by talking to them through their home monitors. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using Identity Orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Dr. Charles Clancy. He's the director of the Hume Center for National Security and Technology at Virginia Tech. 
Dr. Clancy, welcome back. Um, I, I saw some stories pop up, uh, actually uh, a little bit of controversy here about AT&T announcing that, uh, I, I guess, uh, more of a marketing campaign than anything else. So they're, they're releasing some technology, some upgrades to their network that they're calling 5G Evolution. Uh, it's caused some folks to raise some eyebrows here. Can you shed some light on it? What's going on here? Sure. Uh, in fact, notably, T-Mobile released uh, a video on Twitter showing uh, taking a, a sticker that said 9G and putting it in the upper corner of one of their phones uh, <laughs> as a, a jab at AT&T's right. 5G evolution. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, anytime there's a new generation of cell phone technology, there's a big marketing campaign to try and uh, each carrier trying to outflank each other in the media um, we saw the same thing with the transition from 3G to 4G, where you had commercials for both AT&T and, Veri- and Verizon, both uh, indicating they offered the nation's strongest or fastest or most coverage at 4G. Um, and at the time, uh, Verizon had um, upgraded their 3G network to make it have speeds approaching 4G. Meanwhile, AT&T had begun deploying actual LTE technology, and that's why we have the differentiation between 4G and 4G LTE. Uh. Um, Essentially, we're seeing the same thing now with 5G. 5G is, uh, there's an actual standard. Uh, (laughs) It's called new radio. So 5G new radio is the actual uh, signaling format. It's about 50% faster than the 4G signaling. But you can still use the same 4G signaling, but with many of the features of 5G where you would basically be able to to band together multiple chunks of spectrum in order to get the data rates higher. So uh, essentially what AT&T is offering is under uh, pristine conditions, you could see 5G speeds on this network, uh, but it's really all built out of 4G building blocks. I see. And, and so the, the notion here is that uh, we'll start seeing some phones that have that 5G logo up in the corner despite the fact that the underpinnings are still going to be 4G technology? So that's a good question. Um, in fact, the carriers last time around went to uh, the ITU, which is part of the UN, and actually had the definition of 4G changed uh, so that they could legally call it 4G. Mm. Uh, we actually saw the same thing with 3G technology, uh, where um, GSM Edge service uh, was reclassified as a 3G technology, uh, even though it was based on 2G. And uh, it was specifically to try and, and meet those marketing criteria. And, and, and the ITU actually sets these thresholds. So it'll be interesting to see if the ITU uh, is, is willing to call this 5G and whether that, this is uh, something that then becomes more ubiquitous. Um, but it's all really part of uh, this incremental change and upgrade of technologies that ultimately is going to lead to nationwide 5G. Yeah. So buyer beware. Just uh, make sure uh, what you think you're getting is what you're actually going to be getting out there. And keep in mind that right now there is no production 5G service. There's a lot of trials underway, and I expect that within the first half of 2019, we'll start to see real 5G commercial service, but it's it's not quite there yet. All right. Dr. Charles Clancy, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. My guest today is Peter W. Singer. He's a strategist at New America and author of the book Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, along with his co-author Emerson Booking. Mr. Singer is author of a number of books on both conventional and cyber warfare and was named one of the top 100 most influential people in defense issues by Defense News. He joined us from his office in Washington, D.C. 
So we started this project almost five years ago, and there was a series of uh, seemingly, you know, kind of new breakpoints. But actually, now in retrospect, uh, they signified a new normal, um, and they were everything from, uh, for example, you had the first what was called Twitter war uh, that played out where Israel and um, Hamas had one of their sort of regular conflicts, and there was a series of days of airstrikes and the like, and it kind of ended un- inconclusively on the ground. But alongside it, for the first time, you had these um, online, what we now call battles, but basically debates going back and forth as to what was happening, uh, literally millions of messages. And um, what was interesting about it was not just that you had these messages going back and forth, but that the vast majority of the messages claiming what was happening on the ground, who was in the right and wrong, were being pushed by people physically outside the region. And what was even more notable than the fact that, you know, you could, for example, weigh in on this conflict, even though you might be, you know, checking Twitter on the subway and the way to work, is that actually the ebb and flow of the conflict had real world consequences. Uh, They later found that um, essentially whichever side was winning, so to speak, in the trends online, it shaped the um, both pace and uh, location of the airstrikes by over 50%. What was essentially happening is that the Israeli generals and politicians were watching the maps, but also watching their Twitter feed, which now, of course, you know, seems normal. Another example uh, about five years back was we had a um, group of terrorists seize a shopping mall in Kenya, and the government tried to shut down uh, communication and reporting about what was happening. And the result was that the terrorists who were on social media became the primary source for the world on their act of terrorism. So actually, we fed into uh, the the very goal of terrorism, which is you know to drive the message and and it's to drive fear viral. But what was again interesting is the terrorists realized that because they own the narrative, they also didn't have to tell the truth online. You know, again, sort of a, a seemingly obvious realization, but um, you know this is where we are at. And then finally, you had a policy change uh, in the U.S. military, which allowed deploying service members to Afghanistan uh, to use Facebook and Twitter. And so for the first time, you had um, people in the battlefield able to uh, friend their enemy. And in turn, their enemy, the Taliban, could not just friend and stalk and track and communicate with them, but could equally reach out and connect to you know everything from uh, family members, friends, journalists back home, you name it. And so you had this kind of connection point. And so all of these things were a spark for us to start the book project. And then we started to explore essentially how social media was being used in war zones around the world. But very quickly, that widened. If you're looking at, for instance, uh, Iraq, and Syria, the rise of ISIS, becomes a story of terrorism. If you're looking at terrorism, um, you have a cross with things like the drug war in Mexico, and we started to look at how drug cartels were using it. Then we began to look at, hold it, Chicago gangs. If you're looking at um, how it was used in places like Russia uh, and Ukraine, very quickly it moved into American domestic politics. And so the project was essentially uh, trying to explore just what's going on here in this new form of online conflict that, as we talk about it, is not about hacking of computers on the network, 
you know, sort of the classic definition of cyber war, but rather hacking the people on social networks by driving ideas viral, what we call a like war. You know, there's no shortage of, uh, you know, breathless reporting and headlines that um, these networks are going to be the end of us. It's going to lead to the downfall of democracy and, uh, you know, the way we communicate and, and our freedoms are, are at risk. Um, do you think that there's something to that? How, I guess what I'm getting at is you know, how accurate do you think uh, those warnings are? How concerned should we be as we head forward? It's a technology that um, can be used for massive good and massive evil. Guess what? Like every other technology in the past. Hmm. Uh, so if you think of, for instance, the radio, um, Goebbels talked about how his rough quote was, "We this is talking about the rise of the Nazi party. Um, the top propagandist of it said, um, we couldn't have done it without the radio. Of course, the radio also allowed um, FDR's famous fireside chats that mobilized the free world against the Nazis. Uh, the radio also created um, uh, new forms of shared entertainment. So we've been through these kind of you know sea changes before. Um, what we need to recognize is social media is is on that level. Uh, and we've seen it empower new actors who've used it for evil and for good. Um, a couple of things, though, that are important about that. The first is I think right now we feel um, so negative about it, uh, largely because of how positive we felt about it just a couple years ago. You know, just a couple years ago, there was this just crazy level of techno optimism. Um, you know, it was everything from the Arab Spring and, oh, social media has a, quote, liberating power and, you know, uh, dictatorships are on their way out uh, to, you know, Facebook has a um, uh, motto that it's pushing out um, that back then uh, it's meant as a positive. Now it feels kind of creepy where they're pushing, quote, the more we connect, the better it gets. Now think about that, you know, now how that sounds. Um, no, the more we connect, the more we connect. Uh, and, you know, we've seen the good and the bad of it. But you had this kind of crazy level of techno optimism. And now we're feeling sort of the, the second side of it. The other aspect um, is that essentially um, part of why it feels so bad is that we've not understood these new rules of the game. And so, you know, essentially the bad actors, whether it's, you know, Russian disinformation warriors to uh, trolls, um, and conspiracy theorists, they've been the ones that have understood these rules. And so they've been manipulating their way into a level of success that um, they wouldn't have otherwise achieved. And so it's up to us to re to learn these new rules, to be able to push back against it. And that's what the, the book project was um, about, is trying to help us all understand, you know, what are these rules of the game? That's Peter W. Singer. He's author of the book Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, along with his co-author, Emerson Brooking. There is a lot more to our conversation. You can find it over on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash the cyberwire. And that's the cyberwire. 
For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.